there's often like some grain of truth in there that's given them something to latch onto. But then they spin this whole grand narrative around this grain of truth. And that's where it becomes disinforming. Hello, welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode we talk with somebody who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this episode, we're pleased to welcome Samantha North, who is a freelance disinformation investigator who helps organizations to track coordinated and inauthentic online behavior. She's also currently doing a PhD in computational social science at the University of Bath, researching the drivers of political tribalism on social media. I read a great blog post a few weeks ago that she wrote called Six Things That I've Learned From Tracking Coronavirus Disinformation, and I thought she would be really interesting to talk to, given that in a previous episode, I spoke with Valdez Krebs about managing disinformation, which in many ways is more difficult than managing the biological epidemic itself. Sam and I had a great conversation about the contemporary challenges of truth and trust, including what is the incentive for creating, sharing and spreading disinformation, and what are the main tactics for dealing with it. So I started out by asking her, who or what do we trust and why? Enjoy! In general, uh, one of the core principles, I think, of who we trust is people who are close to us, starting from our families and friends, maybe our neighbours and people in our, our local vicinity. This is, you know, outside of the realms of social media at the moment. But also there's the concept of social proof. Something has good reviews. We'll trust it almost um, automatically when we see those. If a person on Twitter has a lot of followers and, or a blue check mark, that's also a method of social proof and it will make us automatically put more trust in them. But as well as that, there's the people who are in our tribe. It's very important that people who share our, our beliefs and have things in common with us are almost naturally more trustworthy to us. And these two elements of social proof and tribalism are, in my opinion, very central to the whole ecosystem of disinformation. What do we lose at distance or at scale that makes trusting information from other people or other institutions more difficult? It's the real human interactions that are missing. The facial expressions for starters. But when you interact with a person in a Facebook comments thread, you know, you have no idea who they are really, but they could very well be somebody with an agenda. And I think now since probably 2015, 2016, when this whole fake news um, concept kind of exploded into public consciousness, that's really come to the forefront. We don't really know who, who we're talking to online. When we're with someone in person, you know, we're making eye contact, we're sort of you know, mirroring people's body language or, or not, as the case may be. We're forming whether we trust this person and what they say based on not really on the information that they're sharing, or, or maybe partly, but also based on lots of other factors. At one level, that sounds strange. Why should that really make any difference to the verifiability and reliability of the information that they happen to be imparting? I think it's almost, almost a subconscious feeling, you know, when, you, when you're with a, a real human, they're just less likely to be fake. If you and I were sitting in a pub chatting, it's going to be very much of a strain and very difficult for me to pretend to be 
someone from a different country, for example. If there's a Twitter account that's um, involved in spreading some kind of disinformation narrative, mm-hmm. so they set up their bio and their, pro- and their profile picture and everything on Twitter to give this impression, and then they, they proceed to tweet. Now, that kind of thing cannot be faked in real life without a great amount of effort. So I think it's kind of that the barriers to entry to, to fakery are a lot higher when you're, when you're face-to-face with a real human being. That's why in, in the olden days, you know, spying was such an art because it was so high stakes to pretend to be somebody completely different. So I'm just reminded of, uh, <laughs> I feel slightly embarrassed to admit this, but I, I think I'm generally not very good at lying and I'm sort of quite proud of that fact in many ways. But I remember once years mm. ago in the era before mobile phones, when you still used to talk to people on planes as you got on, I thought, oh, wouldn't it be fun if I pretended to be someone else and I sort of invented <laughs> a different persona? But I, ma- I managed it for about 60 seconds before I started tying myself in knots and that just felt so so excruciatingly embarrassed about the whole experience. I, I had to not talk to the person for the rest of the flight because it was just... Um, it was just too difficult to maintain that pretense for even 60 seconds I found incredibly difficult. So anyway, yeah. I've, I've never tried <laughs> no, that again. No, I, to- I totally know what you mean. And actually, um, when, I, when I used to live in China, um, for some reason, I, a friend and I pretended that we were, we were Russian just because somebody was kind of pestering us for a conversation and we didn't want to interact at that point. Then we couldn't speak to each other anymore because we, we, we couldn't speak Russian. <laughs> <laughs> and that actually reminds me, there's, a, there's an excellent Netflix series called The Spy with Sasha Baron Cohen. Have you seen that? I haven't, but I do know Sasha Baron Cohen, of course, yeah. yeah well, he pretends to be, um, to be a Syrian and he's an Israeli in the, in the series, but he pretends to be Syrian and he has to have this whole backstory. And it's like a life or death thing, you know. So the stakes are pretty high in person. So it's funny that you mentioned Sasha Baron Cohen because I was actually thinking of his brother. I don't know if you know that his brother is a famous kind of professor of autism at Cambridge, I think. I've forgotten his name, but it's also some. Yeah, Simon, right? Simon, Simon, that's right. Because one of the tests for autism is seeing if you can read the emotion from eyes. So they show you lots of different pictures of people's eyes and then they give you a kind of multiple choice of emotions and you need to sort of match the emotion Mm -hmm. with the expression and not just the expression, just literally just the, you know, the eyes. And there's something about, you know, eye contact Mm. and trust, which are definitely interrelated. So I just wonder if there's a, there's a link to autism. Anyway, sorry, I just made that connection because I was thinking about that earlier when you were talking Yeah, you know, you're making unexpected connections. That's what it's all about. (laughs) You wrote this fantastic blog post a couple of weeks ago around disinformation, in particular in around coronavirus, which I'd like to come on to. But just before we sort of go into some of the specifics, I'm just curious if you could perhaps explain the difference between misinformation and disinformation. It's basically the intent. So, So misinformation is a broader term. And that can apply to all kinds of incorrect and inaccurate information. So this could be anything from rumor to a mistake to a deliberate deception. But when you come to the deliberate deception, that's when the, the term disinformation can be used. So it's all, it's all in the intent. And I think also so something, that's, sorry, that's something that's important to remember with that is that disinformation is not always um, purely a fake. Like I think it's uh, first draft news have a really good spectrum of disinformation and it can be anything from a pure fake to something like highly politically biased story and everything in between. So there's a lot more to it. So I'm not sure I understand that last point. So disinformation is not necessarily a fake as in fake news. It could be real news, but just with a particular spin on it. Right. So so a conspiracy theory. Right. So let's look at the, the 5G is harmful one. There's often like some grain of truth in there or there's some event or something that um, a scientist or whatever said that's given them something to latch onto. 
but then they spin this whole grand narrative around this grain of truth and that's where it becomes disinforming so sorry that's the example that 5g phone masks can cause the coronavirus which has recently been leading <laughs> to phone masks being burnt down and, and everything yes. else so mm -hmm. you gave a number of uh, really interesting, and I wasn't aware of all of them, uh, examples of disinformation in relation to the current COVID-19 crisis in your blog post a couple of weeks ago. I just wonder if you can give a few other examples, as well as mm -hmm. the 5G one that you just gave, that have come to your attention recently. Some that have stood out for me recently. Last week, I think it was, there were protests around the US in, in various cities, and they were protesting that they didn't want lockdown anymore. So a, a few days later, Somebody found out, I think it was a journalist, they discovered that Facebook local groups for these different locations around the country, like I think in Michigan, for example, there was a very big Facebook local group with about over 10,000 people in it. In this group, some pro-gun, far-right lobbyists had actually been astroturfing the protests. Should I define astroturfing? Uh, yes, please. It's like um, creating the illusion of popular support. So popular grassroots support. And I think that's where the astroturfing name came from. So, so astroturfing is just, yeah, creating the illusion of popular support. And it's actually been a thing even before the social media age. Where this relates to that is that um, these, these pro-gun far-right lobbyists were in these groups, basically with these fake accounts, whipping people up and encouraging them to protest these lockdowns and probably promoting these narratives of the coronavirus being a hoax. So you can see here like a really clear example of how disinformation and inauthentic online behavior can drive people to real life harmful activity. There's a couple of others. There was an interesting case in the UK again last week where a guy on Twitter broke this story where he found a bunch of fake NHS Twitter accounts that were promoting the narrative that herd immunity is the best response to the coronavirus. So this was interesting because the person who found these accounts, he claimed that this was the UK government who was controlling the, this, this group of Twitter accounts. And it's quite difficult to, to, to verify who owns one of these accounts. But this story got quite a lot of traction. And a lot of people, and I, I have to admit, I was one of them, jumped in and engaged with this particular narrative without maybe doing as much analysis as we should have. And then a couple of others I've seen floating around um, in the US 2020 election run up. There are a lot of content that suggests Joe Biden has dementia or Alzheimer's. And these are particularly prevalent on YouTube. So people will put together videos of Joe Biden stuttering over his words. And then they put it forward and then they say, hey, look at him. And this is like a, quite a kind of um, has quite a lot of staying power, this narrative. Again, you know, it could be harmful to him and his his run for U.S. president. Um, just finally, there's a lot of so-called miracle cures for the coronavirus. And these can there's a whole different variety. There can be anything from blasting your face with a hairdryer. Oh, really? I haven't heard massive, that one. Okay. Massive doses of vitamin C and a whole bunch of stuff in between. I'm curious about the origins of these stories, first and foremost, and then kind of the motivation for people yeah. to maybe latch on and share them. But so if we can just talk about the origins for one thing, what are some of the, the motivations for creating this disinformation in the first place? So for starters, yeah, there's, there's the political stuff, you know, the ideological uh, disinformation, and that's probably the one that gets the most coverage in the media and in the popular imagination at the moment. You know, I, I don't like to say that like there's one political side that is kind of more prone to it than another, because I, I think that 
technically any political side can and probably does produce disinformation. But in the, in the last few years, um, I believe it in the Brexit situation and the Donald Trump situation, you know, there's pretty concrete evidence that a lot of disinformation came from the sides that were supporting Brexit and supporting Trump. There's been a ton of research, a ton of news coverage on, um, into this. So I feel, you know, quite confident coming out and saying that. But uh, there are also people who do it for other motivations. And in particular, just making money is really common with disinformation. Uh, I used to work for an organization called the Global Disinformation Index. And they they have a very interesting focus because they focus on the um, relationship between disinformation and making money from online ads. So I don't know if you remember, but back in 2016, there was this story about teenagers in Macedonia who were creating lots of websites and content in support of Donald Trump. Uh, The story goes that they actually tested content that was pro-Hillary Clinton as well as pro-Donald Trump. But they found that in their A-B tests that the Trump stuff was what got a lot more attention and more clicks than the Hillary Clinton stuff. So it made them much more money. And that was really the only reason it could have gone the other way. It just depended on clicks and dollars. So, so I would think you say actually... disinformation is a direct sort of byproduct of our advertising based business model that underpins the web? Yeah, I, I think there's a, you know, there's a powerful relationship between the two. And, and in, in, in many cases for these people, if disinformation was not profitable, then they would find something else to do, some other way to make money. And if we remove that part of the disinformation ecosystem, then at least we'd have a bit less to focus on, and we could just focus on the more ideological stuff. And as Just playing devil's advocate for a minute, uh, you know, some people would argue that you know, the establishment or the mainstream media, what have you, you know, were biased mm-hmm. towards the status quo or a certain state of affairs. So at least some of the disinformation is about trying to disrupt or shift the mainstream kind of narrative around a particular topic, for instance. I guess it's when does spin become lying, I guess? What's the, the boundary between those two? There's been a, a lot of websites that, that have challenged the status quo for, for years, like, jo- for example, the journalist John Pilger, um, a, a fan of his and followed his work. But I think the problem is there now, I call it like anti-imperialism, sort of, you know, dismissing that, the estab- that everything the establishment does is negative. I used to subscribe to this quite wholeheartedly about maybe nine, eight or nine years ago. I think it is important to, to an extent to challenge existing ways of doing things. But I think now that has really been kind of hijacked. So in, in some research we've done recently, uh, we've been looking at pro-Kremlin and far-right websites. And there's quite a lot of overlap between the narratives on those sites and anti-establishment narratives from before. So it's almost like those anti-establishment views have been sort of hijacked and twisted in a way and, and used for maybe more nefarious political ends. So, that, I mean, that's fascinating. Just you know, what changed for you eight or nine years ago in terms of your attitude towards the establishment? Mm. I think I just started to realise maybe constantly challenging everything the establishment does is perhaps blinkered approach, just like you know, you're accusing other people of just blindly following, but then maybe just blindly challenging everything is also kind of the other side of the coin. It should be possible to have a more nuanced perspective on these things. In some countries, you know, the, the government, I think, is a force for good, like New Zealand right now with the coronavirus and the way that they're handling it. I think it's been exceptional. And then there are others that do things differently. And, and perhaps there's more to criticize in those. So it's definitely something 
I think on a case by case basis, rather than just lumping the establishment as one big chunk and assuming that everything it does is bad. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think trying to get a more nuanced picture of what's going on is part of the reason why people seek out maybe alternative opinions and alternative kind of news sources though as well, isn't it? So at one level, the intention behind seeking out alternative opinions is good because it's trying to understand complexity. But on another level, it might lead you to some fairly disreputable uh, disinformation sources which have no basis in reality so so again Definitely. there's another trade-off yeah and, and, I, and I think the, the the people often who who create those disinformation sites know they're aware of this you know and they just and they can play into it so these people people like you and me maybe who go out there seeking an alternative opinion you know which is a totally valid thing to do but now we're in this really really toxic information ecosystem and it's just not as innocent as it used to be So you talked about your own example of engaging with uh, or engaging in a debate which which you now realise may have not been genuine or may not have been what you first thought it was. Sorry, this was the government NHS Twitter accounts that you mentioned a few moments ago. So yeah, my question is, what's the incentive or motivation, not for creating disinformation, which is what we were just talking about, but for other people to engage with it or to share it or to spread it? Yeah, this is a great question because this is sort of getting to the heart of my, my PhD research at the moment. So my opinion is, and what I'm kind of seeing and observing here, is that I see it again and again. There's this urge to, to sort of get one up on the opposing side. Perhaps somebody will tweet something in support of EU membership and then a bunch of Brexit supporting uh, Twitter users will jump on them and, and start firing off insulting and, and attacking comments. I found this really interesting. And to me, this indicates kind of an us versus them tribal mentality. And it certainly, I think, relates to what I fell victim to myself with those, those Twitter accounts. Just this sort of urge to, to see something that was that fitted with my existing views. And then without even really digging into it too much, you know, just sharing and engaging with it. I'm pretty sure that in, in this environment of social media, when our attention spans have already been quite eroded we are not so likely to take the time to read and analyze a piece of content before just sharing it i guess at one level we're sharing stuff because we feel it represents to some degree who we are or what we're interested in or what what we care about um it's a thing called identity broadcasting yeah and it's, it's exactly what you said really um people broadcasting their identity and saying publicly that they are part of a tribe and they are affiliated with the, this perspective and, and this group, right? And as well as that, they also do it to because they know it's going to get approval from their tribe as well. Yeah, I haven't heard that term before, identity broadcasting, but that's fascinating. I look forward to reading your PhD when it's finally ready. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm reminded, <laughs> I don't know if you've come across a guy called Ron Burt. He's a, I think he might be retired now, but he's a social network theorist at Chicago University and I saw him speak about 10 years ago and he said something which I found really fascinating I'm not sure I really understood it but I think it links to what you were just saying your reputation is owned by the people who discuss it their purpose is building ties with one another which Mm -hmm. need not be about accuracy so much as about empathy so people Mm -hmm. uh, and he the title of one of his books is called gossip Mm -hmm. and reputation so he's talking about the importance and the value of, of gossip which to some extent you know 
sharing, posting, commenting on social media is perhaps a digital equivalent to some degree of gossip and people are not necessarily sharing gossip if you want to use that term uh, necessarily for accuracy but about building relationships as you said with your with your tribe but it's like also this kind of cognitive dissonance you know like so if you're in a facebook group particularly in politics but if you're in a group that has a particular view and everyone is busily discussing their own views again and again and again and kind of reinforcing each other and then if somebody comes along who has a completely different view and makes a comment or a statement you get a sense of cognitive dissonance. It's, it's almost like being slapped in the face. You know, we, we, we find it more comfortable to interact with people who, who have things in common with us. And political beliefs is a really important one, especially in this day and age. I'm sure you're familiar with this concept of the backfire effect, where even yeah. when presented with contrary information, we sort of double down on our beliefs rather than shift our perspectives. Yeah, um, there, there was a study recently that tried to test the backfire effect and it concluded that like it wasn't as prevalent as first thought oh really yeah, but, that's interesting but, but yeah but i still think that and, I, and i've seen this in, in in practice you know like when you when you tell someone they're wrong they usually don't like it and if you tell a conspiracy theorist that their belief that 5g is harmful is wrong you know i don't think it's they're normally going to turn around and say well you know what i agree with you that's something i've never seen before what about kind of herd behavior? So at one level, you know, if people are just following their tribe, then they might be more likely to share disinformation because they're not looking at things coolly and calmly. Are there kind of herd behaviors at play here that you think are particularly relevant to disinformation? There was a study a long time ago, I think back in the 60s, by um, a guy called Tajfel, Tajfel and Turner. They divided the participants into two groups and flipped a coin, and then one group was the heads group, and the other group was the tails group. And I can't remember exactly what they did next, but I know that the heads and the tails group became very, very hostile towards one another, you know, and that they did, they did things that would be detrimental to the opposing side and favoring the side which they belong to. So, so again, I think this is something that plays out in so many contexts, and it's just particularly obvious online. That reminds me of the dr zeus story the snitches (laughs) do you know that one no i don't Um, know that one i think it's basically a parable of racism but there's kind of two dr Mm -hmm. zeus style creatures some who have stars on their bellies and some who don't but then at some point in the story they swap and then the ones who didn't have stars that now get stars and vice versa and anyway it leads to (laughs) tribalism of all sorts it told in a sort of a quirky yeah. Doctor Doctor Zeus style. Um, check it out. It may. <laughs> I will check it may, out. Yeah, it may may sh- <laughs> shed insight on your your PhD. I don't. Uh, you never know. It could be the thing that gives me like a breakthrough. <laughs> well, that would be that would be great. So yeah, I guess uh, you know we spent a little while talking about uh, disinformation, where it comes from, what motivates people to create it, what motivates people to share it. But I guess ultimately, what we need to sort of really come to is what could and should be done about it where do we go from here given the reality of so much disinformation in our world right now what could and should we be doing about it i can think of three main things that are either either happening already or or should be happening more first of all you know there's a lot of fact checking and debunking that goes on and i think that is a a great and necessary thing however we have to keep the backfire effect in mind to a conspiracy theorist who's really convinced of their worldview, they, might, they probably see a fact check as just another tool of the establishment. And then secondly, social media companies have a really important role to play here. 
when they become aware of a particular channel or account that is um, consistently pushing out disinformation, they have a responsibility to take action, to deplatform it, even to defund it from ad revenue. And this doesn't deprive that person of freedom of speech because they can still have, they still have the right to say what they want in their own home or to their own friends, but they don't have any right to such a big freedom of reach. So that's where social media firms, I think, have a responsibility. They've started doing it. Like I know that YouTube deplatformed Alex Jones's channel. And then the final thing is just something that I've, I've been thinking about recently. It's very easy to respond to somebody who, who tries to stir you up online. And I think that if every time somebody tried to inflame us online with some, some silly comment, we can just ignore them. And this is something that I, I try and do more and more, and I don't, still don't always manage to, success, to be successful with. But when somebody makes an attack like that in a comment, they're doing it because they expect a response, because they want the engagement. Perhaps they want the dopamine you know, of, of getting the notifications and getting that engagement. So I think if people en masse were to ignore anyone who tried to stir them up, then it could be quite effective because it would deny trolls and astroturfers. But it's going to be really challenging to make you know, a, a massive amount of people online to ignore any intem- attempts to stir them up. Going back to the responsibility of the social media companies, I totally agree with you. They have a huge responsibility and responsibility yeah. in this area, but they've historically avoided taking that responsibility because it's a minefield, you know, and to, I have some yeah. sympathy for the minefield that it becomes to become an arbiter of truth, which is ultimately yeah. what we're asking them to become uh, mm-hmm. versus, you know, allowing freedom of speech and anyone, and they're just a dumb pipe, which I don't yeah. agree with, but... Um, no, I think we're moving away from that now. Maybe in the beginning of Facebook, they could say that and it would be valid, but I just think knowing what we know now and seeing what we now see, it, it's just, it's, it just can't maintain that. I, I do know that they are, they are making steps in the right direction. Could be too little, too late. And then I think also they still have their bottom line to think about. Because at the end of the day, lots of engagement on the platform and lots of eyes on the website is what makes it more valuable to advertisers. But I guess what we're talking about ultimately with all of this is what it takes to prove something to be true, which is a different way of sort of describing the scientific method. And one thing which often frustrates me about the kind of the media portrayal of, you know, many science related stories is it's possible to sort of absolutely disprove something, but it's not possible to absolutely prove something. So you can never be right. 100% right. You can be 100% wrong, but you can never be 100% right. And that that little wiggle room for doubt is then twisted beyond yeah all recognition so i think we need a more well a more nuanced understanding of what truth and science and reason actually is that sort of makes makes me think of um things like deep fakes kind of it brings the risk of, of redefining like this baseline of what's believable right back in like the 1980s let's say if you had a voice recording of somebody saying something incriminating then that was that was evidence enough to stand up in court and then later on, we had CCTV and video evidence that would again stand up in court. But now in, you know, in 2020, both of those things can be faked. And we've seen it. We've seen Obama's face and voice being faked in a piece of software that's becoming more and more accessible to mm. ordinary people. And I think that's going to get more and more sophisticated. But still, like in the internet age, most things that used to be evidence of a kind of a ground truth can can now be faked but i guess it's just trying to stay 
it's like counterfeiting currency, isn't it? You want to stay one step ahead of the counterfeiters in terms of the, the securities you put in place to, to check those fakes. Do we just need to accept that we're living in a post-truth world that, you know, we can't believe very much, if anything, and just, you know, that is now the new normal. Yeah. And truth um, and trust is is a thing of the past. Is that um, is that too bleak? Uh, it's horrible, isn't it? It sounds like a real dystopia. If we sort of remember that it's it's the online world that's causing all of this right so maybe 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 a solution is to take more of our lives offline if there's any possible way that could happen you know going back to what i said earlier on we were talking at the beginning about the human interaction maybe the solution lies in some way in, in going back to more of that and i don't quite know how that would look or how that would work because the internet is so deeply entwined in all aspects of our lives well, it's interesting because to some extent that's being forced to, well, Corona crisis is forcing us into our homes. And I found a surge of kind of local neighborliness where I live at one level. <laughs> but at yeah. another level, all of my interactions with people are obviously through technology as well. So um, maybe there is an opportunity. Do you think, I mean, I don't want to read too much into it, but, you know, we are in this very strange period of crisis and transition and change. Do you have any thoughts or reflections on how that may affect disinformation and its importance and its role in the future? Well, coronavirus um, has been, a first of all, a massive opportunity for disinformation creators. There are going to be people who are already trying to exploit this. So, so there's always that on the negative side of things. But then on the bright side, uh, there's also, yeah, a lot of potentially positive effects I think um, like you said the neighborliness the environment is getting a nice break at the moment yeah it's a, it's a huge sea change at the moment and I'm pretty sure we haven't seen the last of it so the US 2020 election I, I think is going to be a very critical point in, in terms of disinformation because a lot of this stuff we're seeing around the, the coronavirus is also linked to influencing the result of that it's definitely a historic moment isn't it I mean this this whole year yeah, my final question is just what's the one thing that I should have asked you that I haven't asked you yet in terms no, of God. disinformation and trust and all the topics that we've covered? So I see people all the time talking about Russian bots. This kind of bothers me because a lot of the time the, the person they're accusing of being a Russian bot is nothing like a bot at all. And I think it's really important to remember that a bot is just a script that does probably a, a repetitive action like they're usually used for amplification on twitter so i think the most important thing to remember is the difference between bots and trolls and astroturfers it's the humans we have to worry about thank you to sam i was really struck by her thoughtful pragmatic and clear analysis of disinformation and what to do about it and in particular the distinction between freedom of speech versus freedom of reach and what that means for people and for platforms and as she said at the end even though disinformation has been hugely amplified by technology ultimately it's the humans we need to worry about there are lots of links in the show description that go with this episode if you want to find out more about sam and some of the things we discussed i really hope you found this episode interesting and we'll return again with our next episode very soon before we go please can i ask that you rate comment and subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who you think might like it as well using the hashtag on the edge this will encourage us to keep on making new connections and to find more interesting people to talk to 
and to share those conversations with you. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community that is focused on addressing the most complex and collaborative challenges of our increasingly connected world. Thank you for listening. Until next time, please keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye. Mm -hmm.